Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This is as close as we get uh, to breaking news in the meditation world. Uh, we uh, are doing a special interview today uh, with uh, parascientists uh, and researchers at Brown University who have put out a fascinating new study being published today in Plus One. Here's the deal. Most of us, I, I venture to say almost all of us, get into meditation because we want the good stuff. We want to be more calm. We want to be more relaxed. We want to have less stress. We want to be less yanked around by our emotions. We see those tantalizing brain scans, uh, the imagery from the fMRIs, and we want our brains to be changing in that way. We see athletes and entertainers doing this stuff, and we want it, I think. Certainly, that was the case for me. But the truth is, sometimes there are side effects, and you don't hear a lot about it. Uh, There hasn't been an enormous amount of scientific research into this subject, a controversial subject, I might add, until now. Which brings us back to the the aforementioned researchers at Brown University, Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl, who have just put out this study that is being published, as I said, in the journal Plus One. Uh, Let me just say, uh, I'm going to give a caveat that you've heard me give before, uh, which is that uh, meditation is a very small world. Uh, So as is sometimes the case, uh, these guys are my friends. And uh, that doesn't mean I won't be asking them uh, tough questions, but just in this, in, in the name of full disclosure and honesty, I just want to say that. Uh, so, Jared and Willby, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. I know you've been working on this. I know just because we've been talking about it for years. I know you've been working on this really in a very, very uh, dogged manner for a long time. So, congratulations on on finally seeing this work published. And I know it's just the beginning. I want to, before we get to kind of the meat of what you're reporting here on some of the side effects of meditation, I want to just get a little bit of, so people know who they're dealing with here, I want to get a little bit of background from both of you. So, Willoughby, let me start with you. How how did you get into meditation and, and, and why this particular angle for your research? Um, I started meditating 22 years ago, actually after the death of a friend, a childhood friend, so very much the same reasons other people get into it, had a lot of grief and anxiety and and wanted to learn ways to hold that better. So that's how I started. And um, most of the research that I've done on meditation has been um, around the health benefits, so particularly around depression and um, high states of negative affect has been my main uh, approach. High states of and, negative affect. Can you say that in, uh, and you dumb that down <laughs> for me? Feeling <laughs> um, Just, you know, feeling anxious, stressed, depressed, down, blue. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. you were looking at mitigation of high states of negative affect. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's been my main research is really, you know, the benefits, but really emotional benefits, and then looking at how how those med- different types of meditation affect the brain and the body and how do those changes in the brain and body, how do they relate to the you know, emotional benefits. So that's been my main research. Um, and I think that as the, the field of meditation has gained more traction and more ground, we've been able to ask broader questions. And I think that you know, it's in that larger context of you know, many years of research on positive experiences that we're able to ask um, something 
a little bit more balanced questions. Yeah, I th- I see it as a maturation of the field to be able to look at uh, exactly. go beyond the health benefits. Um, but 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 did you? I'm just curious from your personal experience, what, what drew you to looking at the, some of the side effects here, or some of the, the 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 darker aspects of meditative experience? Um, did you have some of these negative experiences? Did that pique your interest personally? Sure, I've had plenty of you know really challenging experiences, and you know a number of my Dharma friends have as well. And I think we saw how meditation was being represented in the media as a sort of martini or like warm bath, and it was sort of a joke. Like it's you know it's it's not quite that simple. But then we started to see that you know people actually believe that that they think that it's you know can be used for pretty much anything across the board. Um, without any downsides or challenges. And, you know, anyone who's been meditating for any period of time knows that that's a little bit of a simplification. So I think um, that was the just our personal practice and talking to friends and teachers that knowing that there's there's more to the story. Um, And then when I was doing my residency at Brown in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, there were two meditators that were hospitalized while I was there who had just come off a 10-day retreat. And I, I sort of thought, you know, two in one year seems like something worthy of following up with. So that was really the beginning of, like, I should take this seriously in my research and and make this into a research study. I, I failed miserably at giving your full title. So you are uh, assistant professor in the Department of Psych- Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University. So you are a medical doctor, a psychiatrist. Am I, am I saying that correctly? Uh, actually, no, I'm not a psychiatrist. You're not. Um, it's, very, it's very confusing because my appointment is in the Department of Psychiatry, um, but I'm actually a clinical psychologist. So I have a gotcha. PhD, not an MD. And you've yeah. done... But you've done neuroscience research, correct? That's right. Okay. Yep. Um, and so let me, that brings me to your um, your fiance, uh, Jared Lindahl, visiting assistant professor in Brown's Kogut Center for the Humanities. Jared, how did you get into meditation, and why why did you get interested in this uh, particular angle uh, aside from just um, falling in love with Willoughby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that came much later. Um, so. I've been involved with the practice of meditation for ab- about 20 years. My, my interest really started very early uh, in college where I was first, um, I guess, exposed to uh, yoga and meditation classes. And I think what interested me and what has for a long time interested me is um, questions around the nature of consciousness, um, the range of possible human experiences, um, how consciousness and subjective experience can be uh, developed or regulated or wielded as a tool rather than just um, and investigated rather than something just sort of passively uh, experienced. And uh, as I you know, was studying uh, philosophy and anthropology and religion in college, I became particularly interested in the contemplative techniques that are uh, really attempts um, to get better acquainted with uh, the mind and, and the body and emotions and perception and to have a more active and maybe dynamic relationship with those. So questions around um, yeah, consciousness, range of human experiences, and uh, how those impact people has been for a long time what I've been interested in and uh, eventually what I came to pursue academically 
in my undergraduate and especially in my uh, graduate training, uh, which was in uh, the academic study of religion. And by the time I was finishing my PhD, uh, more specifically in the cognitive science of religion. So using uh, methodologies and existing scientific research and theories to attempt to provide some novel explanations for the relationship between religious practices and religious experiences. And so I was uh, researching in particular um, experiences described in metaphors of light and luminosity. And it so happened that I was giving a uh, conference uh, paper on that at a cognitive science of religion uh, conference here at Brown back in 2010, and uh, Willoughby was paired to be my respondent to that paper based upon some expertise she had. And that's when I first became acquainted with the study that was really just beginning uh, at that point in 2010. So she was already and, she was already pushing ahead with what, what's known as the varieties of contemplative experience study and, at that point. Yeah, it was just getting off the ground. I, mm-hmm. There were probably around, I don't know, a dozen interviews or so that had been had been completed at that point. And then I was, had a number of academic appointments after graduating that year and still kept in touch with her. We ended up running a number of research symposia and then also uh, writing the first paper based upon preliminary data from the study, which was really an attempt to unify my dissertation question with the reports of light experiences that she had already gathered in the first kind of half of the study. So uh, our prior paper um, that has been published on those light-related experiences was putting forth a a model based upon my uh, dissertation research on how uh, sensory deprivation is a close analog to uh, meditative practices, and we might have something to learn from looking at sensory deprivation research in explaining um, certain types of experiences associated with meditation. So that led to our initial collaboration, and I just it's a hard project not to become immediately interested in and totally captivated and consumed by. So I eventually um, figured out how to get to Brown and uh, really dove into uh, directing the project, completing the interviews, and running a lot of the qualitative analysis that we did as the basis of the paper. I like uh, I like the fact that I have a, a, a tiny walk-on role in your relationship because I happen to have been stopping by in Providence on my way to mm-hmm. see my parents in Boston the day you moved in, Jared. Yep. That's right. And, and I remember meeting you for the first time, and we had just gotten back from Ikea, and we were <laughs> unloading right. Billy bookshelves, and you got out of the cab in your suit, and that was our first half hour together was you helping us move bookshelves. So <laughs> made uh, a big impression on me. Right, right, exactly. Well, definitely you guys made a big impression on me. I've been, uh, as Jared said, when, when you hear about this study, you, get, you do become captivated by it. So let's get to the study, Jared. Um, so let me start with you here, Willoughby. What yep. is the headline out of this study? And... You, Jared mentioned interviews, so we should say that you the the the, and I'm I'm probably going to mangle this, but the um, the basis of the data is that you conducted a, I believe a hundred interviews with meditators who had had challenging experiences, and that formed the basis of your study. and And I'll let you describe what the headline, uh, the conclusions are. Yeah, I mean, so the basic idea was to we already know all the positive effects they've been circulating for for years now and we wanted to see 
you know, what are, what's the other side of the story? What are the other kinds of effects? And so one of the best places to find that out is to ask meditation teachers, especially ones that run their own centers, have been teaching for decades, and have seen hundreds and hundreds of students. So that's where we started, was talking to really experienced teachers about, you know, what kinds of difficulties have you observed in your students? And when we asked them those questions, a number of the teachers started to tell their own stories. Oh, in my life, in my practice, here are some of the difficulties that I had. So then we started um, making those teachers that we were interviewing as teachers, we did a separate interview um, as practitioners as well. So that's why about 60% of our sample ended up being meditation teachers themselves. So we have two sets of interviews, one of teachers talking about their students, and then one of meditators who have yeah, reported various kinds of challenges. So that that's the sort of basis, and I think there were 92 altogether. Yeah. So what, what are the challenges you're finding? What, what are people encountering? <laughs> oh, well, there's, there's 59 categories of experiences, so um, quite a few to go over, and we separated those out into seven different domains. So we have perceptual, um, affective, which is emotional, somatic, Cognitive. Somatic meaning body related. Yep, bodily related, body function. Cognitive. cognitive uh, motivational and social. Oh yeah, and sense of self. <laughs> sense of self. A lot of different. A lot of different ones. All right. Well, let's just start yeah. unpacking these. So, w- w- yep. What, what? What? Like, just give me some. Are we talking about? Um, uh, so, sense of self. So, what? What do you mean by that? So, um, there are. A number of different types of changes that were associating with sense of self. This ended up being classified as its own dom- domain um, of related phenomena uh, for a couple of reasons that I think are worth understanding at the outset. Um, the first is that you know, the, our, the processes around our sense of self are really quite complicated and cut across a number of Uh, aspects of human experience. So there's bodily aspects that contribute to our sense of self. There's also narrative aspects that contribute to our sense of self. And so already it's a a complex uh, phenomenon. It's also a type of change that's really pretty central to Buddhist uh, teachings and traditions. One of the central goals of Buddhism from the very beginning has been to introduce changes into one sense of self. And there are a number of key terms and, and debates around this, but often it um, in, entails coming to an understanding that certain aspects of one's self that one took to maybe be enduring or permanent or definitive are actually less so. And they're, they're more subject to change, revision, maybe even in some cases the teachers would say that they're illusory. They're not even... Uh, real in an enduring sense. So this is particularly important because um, this is related to some of the goals of meditation in more traditional contexts. And you'll see some of this show up even in in some of the um, more applied aspects of meditation in, uh, say, contemporary psychology, uh, where maybe one of the, the problems that one could address with meditation would be, you know, an enduring negative self-image or rumination about oneself that that leads to these sort of uh, states of um, negative emotions that uh, Dr. Britton was talking about moments ago. What about a feeling Uh, that you don't exist? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting one. That's a little <laughs> bit more on the the deep end of the pool than simply the changes around um, narrative and, and self-image. So there are, maybe even before we get that to there as a as a bridge to that, uh, a lot of practice instructions, not across the board, but certainly in some traditions, will ask that uh, you take a stance of sort of distancing oneself from or even maybe de-identifying with one's transient thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So as these things arise and pass away in the um, duration of your meditation session, there's some distance from identifying with those thoughts, emotions, and body sensations as me. And that can be really helpful for people who are, uh, you know, maybe overly identifying with certain things and, and getting into, uh, again, maybe states of distress or states of sort of um, undesirable neg- negative emotions on account of that. But just as there are benefits to that, if you keep doing that or if you do that in a really intensive and prolonged process, a number of other types of changes could happen that are maybe no longer quite under your control anymore. So thoughts arise, but they don't feel like they're you at all. Or body sensations arise or actions arise, but you feel like there's no agent who's in control of those actions. So you're walking across the room and you don't know who's driving the ship? Yeah. And maybe walking across the road would be a, a more uh, <laughs> another scenario where that would, would be uh, a, love a little bit more uh, concern. Yeah, yeah, that sounds so, dangerous. Like maybe we're talking about psychosis here. That's a that's a tough one. I mean, I think there are we we do have some uh, there are some other symptoms that we can discuss to to get at that end of the spectrum, which is also something we saw in the study. But you know, with regard to the changes of sense of self, maybe just to to conclude on on this point, I think one of the key points that we want to make here is that. Certain things that in certain contexts, like a retreat, are maybe novel insights even, maybe really um, helpful uh, in the context of a retreat. Uh, if they are enduring, and especially if they're no longer in your control as that retreat or practice session ends, and as the practitioner is trying to integrate into his or her daily <clears throat> life, those things that were interesting, novel, maybe even insightful changes those can become difficult to to reintegrate and even a source of impairment and distress if they're no longer something that you can manage well. So if you can't sort of come have your sense of agency and sense of self come back online when you need it to um, because you've spent a lot of time deconstructing it, that can be a problem. So I think the a lot of the issues we're seeing and dealing with are often arising in this context of integration following a practice session or integration following a retreat, um, that can be a particular context in which um, some difficulties arise. Okay, but let me press you on this, guys, because it sounds like, and we've only gotten into, we're in one of the seven domains here. There are lots of domains. That <laughs> What you're describing here sounds like if you meditate enough, you could lose your damn mind. <laughs> That sounds a little bit like a scare tactic. No, um, I'm not trying to be a scare tactic. I'm just saying yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is what people are going to conclude or, or worry about when they hear this. So just talk, talk me as a proxy for the listener off that ledge. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, the way that the meditation has been marketed has, has been similar to kind of a warm bath, very benign um, and harmless. And I think that, you know, maybe the take-home message is to have a little bit more respect 
um, for the power of these practices. So I, I don't think that we want to scare people away from trying it or, you know, induce some kind of mass paranoia. But I think that, you know, these the range of different experiences beyond, you know, common relaxation and even ones that are distressing or impairing um, to functioning ha- have been documented documented before. And we just, you know, documented that they are still happening in, you know, modern day, you know, Buddhist meditators and that that might be something that, that we want to, you know, consider as the as the meditation industry, you know, keeps going. Well, well, so, well said. And, and, yeah. and, and you say this quite eloquently in, in your uh, paper and in the pr- accompanying press release that the meditation has been around for millennia. And in the uh, literature from way, way back, they talk about difficulties in, in the varying schools. You're looking at Buddhism and the three main schools of Buddhism, the Zen, Tibetan and Theravada. They talk about uh, the kind of difficulties med- meditators will encounter. And, and in Theravada, for example, there's a stage of the path known as fear. Um, so this is, you know, as you say in your own uh, paper, this is not new, but it hasn't been looked at in this new batch of, of science and excitement that we're seeing around meditation. But I, I, I just want to drill a little bit deeper on that scary question I asked before. What would you say to somebody who's hearing this and, and is like, oh, well, so should I not meditate now? Well, as um, will it be said, I, I don't think that uh, the conclusion that should be derived from our research is that, um, you know, this isn't worth doing at all. And, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that because this is a interview-based study where really what we have are, you know, 60 or 92 different stories, but let's just stick with the practitioners for a minute. We have 60 different uh, practitioner narratives that had a wide range of experiences, and in some cases, experiences quite similar um, to each other. What makes an ex- a particular experience even feel negative, let alone distressing or impairing? Um, that that I think uh, you know another major part of our paper is to attempt to identify what we call the influencing factors. And these are the, you know, perhaps some of the variables, probably not even all of them, that impact whether a practitioner is going to feel distress or have a negatively valenced experience, whether they're going to be impaired, how they're going to resolve this experience, how long the experience is going to last. So when we interviewed um, these practitioners, in addition to them talking about usually a couple of dozen different types of experience that they had, not all of which by any means were negative, but at least uh, some were, they also identified usually around a dozen of these influencing factors. And that can range from things like their early life history, some of their medical or psychiatric history. It can range from what types of practices they were doing, their degree of social support, their relationship with their teachers in their communities, and a whole list of what we called health behaviors, which were different types of responses usually. So things like um, psychotherapy, presence and absence of medication, changes in diet and exercise, these sorts of things, really depending on the particular type of phenomena that we're talking about. 
So certain phenomena tended to be maybe either transient or um, fairly easy to resolve or integrate, uh, whereas others definitely required a lot more support and often support going beyond what a meditation teacher or center or practice or conception of the path could provide. So to, just to come back and comment a little bit on what you were mentioning earlier about the presence of these phenomena in um, Buddhist texts and traditions, uh, I think you're right about that for a, a lot of these phenomena are there. What's interesting, we found, is that um, despite recognition or acknowledgement of a lot of these things, and I certainly wouldn't say all of them, there's also often some disagreement about what they mean and what their value is. Mm. So as we were interviewing teachers, we were really hoping to get some consensus statement about what is a meditation difficulty and what do you do about it. But teachers really varied considerably based upon their background, their lineage, their teachers, their approach, whether they had um, some sort of psychological or psychiatric training in addition to their training as a Buddhist teacher. A lot of these things could really influence what they considered to be part of the path versus what they considered to be as you were using the word earlier, a side effect or let's say an unwanted effect that and one that maybe in, required some sort of intervention uh, beyond just practicing differently or um, some sort of uh, you know easy fix through practice technique. Um, this, I think, is, again, another really key point that uh, from our study that the experiences themselves don't necessarily have intrinsic meaning, and they're not all intrinsically adverse. Maybe there are a couple of exceptions to this where intense fear, suicidal ideation, these types of things um, were pretty, pretty universally uh, treated as things that need some sort of remedy, and, and it's not something that a practitioner should stay in for a prolonged period of time. But as you pointed out, even, even fear can be really a, a, a tricky one because there are particular conceptions of the path, as you pointed out in Theravada Buddhism, where that's considered an expected stage and even perhaps a sign of progress, and even though a difficult one, is could be read as um, moving on to something that uh, is ultimately of benefit to the practitioners. So this ends up really always being negotiated socially with the teachers, with the communities. Um, and in cases where practitioners don't have that type of support or framework, uh, these things can be even more disorienting. I mean, you said so many interesting things there, Jared. Um, I mean, in, in particular, and I've heard Willoughby talk about this before in our private conversations, that, that people who get into meditation, uh, again, for the martini slash warm bath, they may not know that these, that in, that th these difficult stages um, are considered, you know, signs of progress in some of these schools. So you may be... Uh, but they're not signing up for that. Um, so, that, so I mean, it, there seems to be some sort of like cultural misunderstanding here almost. Yeah, a cult, I would say sort of a mismatch. And, I mean, one, you know, possible way forward is, you know, when people start meditating, it might be a good idea to think about why they're meditating. What what do they want? What kind of goals are they trying to achieve? You know, what you know, even what is well-being, what is happiness, what is suffering, like really think about that and then, you know, make sure that the practice and the teacher and the tradition and the program that you choose really matches 
your goals because there are so many different kinds of practices and teachers and approaches and reasons to do these practices um, that getting a good fit is really kind of the best uh, way to optimize your uh, results. How, how common do you think difficulties are? <laughs> yeah, that's the million-dollar question. And unfortunately, the way that we did the study, our, the methodology is really not set up to answer that question. So it's just going to have to be, you know, stay tuned for a future research kind of answer. Do, do, do you think um, uh, an analog that I use, I mean, I haven't talked about this publicly, but it's just in my own head, is with exercise. So with exercise, you know, we all know it's possible you, you could get hurt. Um, and that's why, you know, your gym makes you sound a waiver. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not, uh, I, I get hurt once in a while. That's not happening to me every day. And there are things I can do to, to mitigate the chances, uh, uh, reduce the chances that I would get hurt. Would you say that's a fair analogy? Yeah, I'm always looking for really good, you know, metaphors and analogies. I haven't found a perfect one, but I think I think exercise has a lot to offer. I mean, there's there's in exercise you also hear like a no pain no gain kind of instruction sometimes and you know, that sounds that sounds really great until you injure yourself and then, mm-hmm. you know, then your coach is like, "Oh no, I didn't mean no pain no gain in that sense." So obviously, you know, they they scale back those instructions um, when it comes. So, so there are there are some nuances there, but you know, within within exercise, there's also people who are trained to identify, you know, what types of um, behaviors or postures or you know intensities are likely to lead to injury, and there's entire books written about it that are you know too many. There, so I think. With that analogy, we want to build something um, comparable in the meditation community. That doesn't really exist now. Yeah, so talk about, um, talk about what you want to see built. Well, I, I think that to, just to have a general awareness. So when you get the paper, we, there's also a code book with the, with the 59 mm-hmm. categories, like, you know, really detailed descriptions of these experiences and you know, this is this is like 101 for a meditation teacher. Like any teacher should should be very well versed in any of these experiences and just be able to identify them when they come up. And they may have different views on what should be done about them or how to manage them, but they should at least be, you know, very familiar with what they are. And I think generally speaking, someone who goes into meditation should, you know, have a sense of what they are as well. That might just just a basic uh type of awareness. So that that's like kind of the 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 basic level. And I think as we as the research continues and other people are also doing research on this, we'll have a better sense of like what kinds of options um are the most helpful. Um and I think we have some ideas of what can be tested at this point, but we don't really have real like answers. So I think that's kind of where we're going um to build a really informed and adequate support structure for when these experiences come up. But don't, I mean, I go to the Insight Meditation Society. Don't they have, if if I recall correctly, they have somebody on staff to deal with uh, people who are experiencing challenges and have for a while. Yeah, they, I mean, there have been um, support staff and they are awesome and they help a lot of people, but there's often only one or two people and they're not always available after the retreat ends and the person needs you know longer or more long term or sometimes you know even 24 hour care so 
Um, that's a really good start, but I think we need more. And I think the you know there are lots of clinicians now that that have training in mindfulness and meditation-based interventions, and um, they would be really great people to um, be taking on some of the people that are having more um, enduring difficulties. You, 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 this is such an – you spoke before about the cultural misunderstanding that can happen with people who are you know, looking for a bubble bath and find that their sense of self is dissolving and that's not what they wanted. But there's, a, there's a, another potential culture clash here, which is you could walk out of a meditation retreat – um, having some specific meditation-related challenges, like uh, to list some of the things that you include, uh, like hypersensitivity mm. to light or sound mm-hmm. or insomnia, involuntary body movements, things, things, uh, or um, a heightened sense of fear, anxiety, or a loss of emotions altogether. These are some of the things that you've found in, in your mm-hmm. research. But if you go to a clinician who has no training or background in meditation, you might get, I don't know, medicated or treated in a way that actually doesn't meet your specific needs because they're going to see it through the lens of uh, psychopathology, right? Um, Yes. And I think that, you know, we have to be really aware that there are multiple frameworks at play here and there really always have been. um, So I think it's important to really understand where the meditator is coming from, which framework or frameworks um, they're using, and to have that decide, you know, where they're seeking help. Yeah, and I, th- I think that this can really cut both ways, too. So to come back to the no pain, no gain analogy that you two were discussing in the context of exercise, a lot of practitioners in our study and even some teachers invoked something akin to that um, framework for the for meditation, that it's supposed to be difficult. And that's part of the process. And that's part of how one gains benefits from it. I think the challenge becomes that it's really not always clear where to draw the line between something that's difficult, but can be held in the context of practice, worked through and then benefited from, from something that can't be and from something that needs some sort of additional support. Part of the, and I think that's something that needs to be negotiated between the practitioners and the teachers, which is why we're hoping that this study will inform both of them. One of the challenges in you know, the current meditation world in America, at least, is that you know a lot of people go away for these retreats that may even be quite geographically distant from where they live and reside. And as Willoughby mentioned, that you might have some good resources while you're on the retreat, um, we hope, but that that may not also get you um, in the to see you through the process of integration, or if these things are enduring or they come back up in your daily practice. A lot of people in our study had difficulties, even in the context of daily practice. So this is not just limited to retreat contexts. Um, but that then that, that those resources might not be available. Um, it's also the case that given a lot of these, the transiency of some students coming on retreat, while there's some good attempts to understand a practitioner's background, most teachers aren't going to know a lot about the people they're working with unless they develop a close relationship with them. And so I think in this case, this is also why it's really important for the practitioners to be informed that some aspects of 
um, you know, their life history or, or their personal medical or psychiatric or traumatic history, that these things could be at, at play and that they, they could be, on, be beyond the scope of what they should expect a meditation teacher to be able to hold and help them process. So I think that, again, this is all really a process of, uh, of negotiation. It really highlights the importance of communities and relationships in both appraising and responding to what's happening uh, during meditation. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. How do you know that meditation is the cause of the things you're finding in your study? Because a lot of them, I mean, you, you found some pretty... Uh, you know a whole range of things, um, but but some of them are pretty uh, are are pretty daunting. I mean, the suicidal ideation, for example. Um, how do you know that that isn't the result of some sort of pre-existing psychological con- or psychiatric condition? Yeah, so this is one of the most challenging questions um, to uh, assess causality. And so what we did was we used the methods that regulatory agencies like the FDA or the World Health Organization use to assess the safety of, you know, medical devices or medical treatments. And so um, they typically use 13 different criteria, and we were able to use 11 of those criteria. So um, I can go through them one at a time. I go through them ad nauseum in the paper, so if you want to know more about it. But, you know, subjective attribution is one, like does the teacher – or the practitioner think that meditation was the cause. So, just, you know, the basic they thought it was counts for at least one point. Then the temporal proximity, which is also called challenge, where the, the experience um, happened during meditation or shortly after. Um, then we have consistency, and there's three different kinds of consistency where it happened on more than one occasion. So they say, every time I meditate, X happens. So there's a, the temporal... Uh, proximity is repeated over time. Um, then you have interpersonal, uh, intersubjective consistency where this happens across different people. So, 
in the context of meditation, the same experience is arising across different people. Um, and then you have cross-modal consistency where both teachers and meditators are saying that this is caused by meditation. Um, and then you have de-challenge, which means that the effect goes away when you stop meditating. So if people back off for a while and then like their headaches go away or they start sleeping again. Um, and then re-challenge is when when you start again, you start meditating again, and then you stop sleeping again or your headaches come back. So those are some of the ones that um, are related to um, the time the time frame, the temporal proximity. And then you also have subject uh, uh, expert judgment. So the fact that there were 32 meditation teachers who said, you know, the, these effects are caused by meditation. And then we also have prior published reports. So we found more than 40 published reports in the medical literature um, describing these same kinds of experiences um, and being attributed to meditation. So we, we, we made an effort to, to address the causality as best we could with the uh, design that we had. And you summarized that with admirable concision, I have to say. And l- let me ask a related question, which G- uh, Jared touched on a little bit earlier, the dosage question. So uh, you guys have talked a lot about retreats, but what about those of us who practice only five to ten minutes a day? We use an app or we um, read a, a John Kabat-Zinn or a Sharon Salzberg book and we're just kind of bopping along with our own five to ten minutes or uh, whatever, are these people likely to bump into, you know, hypersensitivity to light and somatic changes such as insomnia and voluntary body movements and uh, all this sort of litany of, of challenges that you lay out in your, in your study? Yeah, I, I think I want to shy away from commenting on the term likely because, as Willoughby mentioned earlier, we, we really can't say anything conclusive about that. What I can say is that I think it's worth keeping in mind that with those um, various causality, uh, modes of causality assessment that were just summarized, um, you know, we're also looking at those in relationship to a lot of these other variables that are that are maybe practitioner specific or practice specific or relationship specific. And I think in this case, you know, um, some things like there, there are some ways in which we're getting some indication that um, certain practitioner level variables, so say, for instance, prior trauma history, the presence or absence of that, um, you know, those, those, are, those are two different than, you know, populations that, you know, we can't just lump them together and say, well, if these two people are doing 30 minutes a day or two hours a day, that they're you know, necessarily going to have comparable experiences because it's not just about the amount of practice. The amount of practice definitely can be a variable, but there are a lot of other variables that that we also looked at. So, for instance, um, you know, to stick with that example, um, you know, there is indication in our study and in other prior studies on meditation. Uh, that re-experiencing of, of traumatic memories is something that can happen, and it doesn't necessarily need a lot of practice. And there were a lot of people, well, maybe not a lot, but there were enough people in our study who were working at the lower end of practice amount and intensity that I think we should take seriously the possibility that some of these things could start to emerge, uh, could start to show up. They might not end up being as intense as for other people in different contexts or with different backgrounds. 
Um, but this is really a question that we think needs a lot more further research. Um, we have a mixed pool of, of practitioners. They were doing a lot of different things with a lot of different amounts. Um, so we, we can't really conclusively answer the question of how, whether there's a safe amount to do it, for instance. But I think people should generally be aware of what some of these phenomena are, maybe even be aware of how some of them are even closely related to things that are that are good. Um, to give an example of that, regulating your emotions and maybe decreasing your emotional range or intensity can be something that people are really trying out meditation for, and it can be a really big benefit uh, for them to do that. But at the other end of that range or the other end of that um, you know, same trajectory, could be the loss of emotional range altogether. And we've, we've had a number of stories of people coming off, say, of an intensive retreat in practice and not feeling any emotional connection with their, their family and loved ones and having that be a real source of distress that what was once a kind of positive aspect of gaining more uh, equanimity, gaining more emotional, um, uh, less emotional range, that when emotions disappear altogether, uh, that's maybe no, no longer uh, no longer desirable. Did, 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 so, did those people? Sorry to just interrupt you, Jared. I know I've interrupted you a couple of times, but I just want to make sure I follow up on that. Did those people say that 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 lack of affection uh, for their family um, was that a permanent thing or was it a temporary shift? Yeah, thankfully that tended to be temporary. I don't think anybody um, you know, is still going uh, through that. At least I, I hope not. The but temporary meaning like. One of those I remember lasted a year. Ooh. So yeah, temporary, but long enough. And and it's really the the enduring nature of it, and again the loss of control over that that can be part of why that's distressing. So yeah. you know, this complicates matters further to also bear in mind that in these practices are coming out of often a very monastic context. They're coming out of a tradition that, at least in certain historical and geographical uh, contexts, was about renunciation of worldly concerns. So one could even suggest that this is, again, one of those things that might be a sign of some sort of progress, that maybe one is to continue on the path, and and that's actually considered a goal. Not all Buddhist or all Buddhist traditions would agree with that, but it's there are definitely some that for whom the this sort of intense equanimity could be construed as valuable. The challenge then becomes what are the dominant motivations of people who are picking up this practice in 21st century America? And is that really what they're wanting or expecting, regardless of whether that's considered to be the goal in some other place or time? Uh, and that's where, again, this cultural negotiation and uh, is, is a big part of what we think we're grappling with here. So let me see if I can state your bottom line in terms of uh, – and, and then I'll, I'll probably – almost certainly will mess this up and then you guys will just correct me. But is your bottom line to rank-and-file meditators – and I'm not talking about folks who are – you know, avidly attending retreats. I'm talking about you're basically, you know, you're um, doing five to 10 minutes a couple days a week, et cetera. Is your bottom line like, uh, yes, this is a good thing to do. Just know that there's a range of potential outcomes, some of which may not be positive. It's not uh, not happening. Um, well, you don't know the frequency, but uh, so should, should I, I, I'm kind of at a loss. So like, what what should we be telling people 
to have their eyes open for if they're continuing or looking to establish a meditation practice? I mean, obviously, meditation practice has been, you know, profoundly beneficial for many, many people. So, you know, if you're interested in meditation, you should try it. I mean, and but also know that there are many different versions and different types of practices and different programs and apps and and teachers that have different orientations with different goals. So I think, you know, be an informed consumer, like do your homework and and choose choose wisely um, and choose a program. It's, it's similar to choosing a doctor. I mean, choose one that that matches what you're looking for. So I think that that may be one take home message. We're absolutely not trying to dissuade people from meditating. There's obviously a huge benefit um, for many people, but that's not the whole story. And I think, you know, one of the motivations for the study is to really give voice to a group of people that have felt incredibly ashamed and very isolated because they had had a less than optimal meditation experience. And we're trying to, you know, give them a little bit of voice that like this also happens. Um, and, you know, if it happened, if you have some some something other than common relaxation in your meditation experience, like you're not alone and it's not your fault. Um, we, these are well-documented experiences and, and they, and they happen. So it's a lot of it is reaching out to that group that has really been, um, marginalized up until this point. And, and we should say, can I just add something to that? Absolutely. Go ahead. I think in, in order to reach that community and, and also, you know, help them that, we hope that raising awareness about the range of possible experiences, the range of possible variables that impact those and how they land on someone, and the range of responses for what to do with them. You know, while we don't have conclusive data on any of those things, we, what we have is our summary of what people told us, practitioners and teachers told us. We hope that that can not only help practitioners be more informed consumers, but the people who are responsible for guiding those practitioners, whether that's meditation teachers and centers, uh, whether that's increasingly clinicians as well, that their increased awareness about the range of possible phenomena and the range of responses to them, that in time we can help provide some resources uh, that will help them figure out how to, again, negotiate um, what are often some, some really challenging decisions about how to interpret something, uh, how, what type, what is the best response? Uh, is, it just to, is it to keep practicing and get through it? Is it to stop practicing, seek something else? What, what should we do here? And we're not really in a position here to yet make those types of recommendations. This study started and emerged from a collaboration with teachers and practitioners and clinicians. And we think the implementation of any best practices is also going to be a collaborative project. But inevitably, people listening to this podcast, some some percentage will have had these experiences or maybe dealing with it right now. Is there Are there resources out there for people? I mean, there are a number of teachers that are very knowledgeable and, you know, available. There are also clinicians that are knowledgeable and available. I mean, what we're hoping to do is actually create a, sort of a referral list as part of our website. Um, we ha- we've had a number of teachers and clinicians volunteer to be a resource, um, but we just haven't had um, an opportunity to put that together yet. But that's what we're hoping. Can people contact you? <laughs> 
Uh, people do contact me. Um, like I've had uh, more than 300 people contact me and I do my best to talk to people um, as much as I can, but it's a, it's a lot of volume um, and more than I can handle well. So I'm hoping that um, this, you know, that we can have other people um, help out with that. You, for a while, were running something called Cheetah House in your house, uh, the one where I helped you move in the IKEA furniture. <laughs> right. uh, can you tell, tell us a little bit that you, you basically had people who were having med- meditation difficulties living with you for a while. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so a number of people that, that called us um, in response to the study or some of the media coverage of the study, um, you know, they... They were well enough to not be in the hospital, but they were not well enough to be, you know, working. And they really just needed a place to to be in community with other people that understood what was happening to them and support them through this. Because, again, like a lot of times the conflicting frameworks of being told that, you know, you're sick or this is pathological, that wasn't helping them. They needed a little bit of space and community. Um, so I have a you know a big Victorian home, and I have a th- third floor with a couple extra rooms in it. So p- people um, stayed there, and um, you know healed and talked to each other. And it was I-, I hope that something like that can be resurrected in the future. It was um, financially not really that feasible to have you know be sort of taking care of this many people. Um, with having a full-time job doing something else. So, I mean, I think it's a great idea, and I think that there's – I think there have been other places like that. Um, I believe there was one in in California for a while where uh, sort of meditation communities where people can um, be supported in a more long-term way by their peers. Um, But, yeah, Cheetah House as a residential facility is is no longer – it's just an apartment now. Um, but we have we are trying to make the resources available um, on the website, and we also have started um, just the beginning of some support groups because I think one of the things that we're finding that pe- people find really helpful is to you know reach in, reach across that ice feeling of isolation and shame, and when people share their stories with each other, it's it's just just so. Uh, supportive and, and comforting. So the support group idea, I think, is a really great one. But it, we just just started that. You mentioned before that. So the the fact that you've been studying this has been out in in the in the public for a while. So that you're re- releasing the results on May 24th. But yeah. we've known for a while that you've been the study's been ongoing, and that has attracted a lot of people <clears> to you who have had questions. What has the reaction been in in the meditation industrial complex? You know the the people like me who have apps and uh, other scientists who have been touting the benefits of meditation, how do people respond to the fact that you're doing this? I mean, not surprisingly, I think it's been a mix. Um, I think there have been a lot of really encouraging responses in that. So the Centers for Mindfulness, the UMass Center, the Oxford Center, the Bangor Center, the big centers that are interested in or involved in doing uh, mindfulness instructor trainings um, have been you know, very open and supportive of um, the research, they've written support letters when I apply for grants. We're trying to make our codebook into a questionnaire that can be used in clinical trials and meditation centers. And um, a number of the the um, directors of those uh, mindfulness centers wrote letters of support and how important this was and how much it was needed. Um, so that was really encouraging. And they've also invited me to, to 
um, come share the data in some of their uh, mindfulness instructor programs um, this summer in the UK. So I think that's all really positive development. A number of Dharma centers have asked Jared and I to come and give um, just kind of an overview of the different uh, experiences that we're seeing in our data to different Dharma teachers and also, you know, the support staff at the centers. So I th- hopefully that will, you know, continue. You know, and then there's other people that are just not really ready to hear it. And um, I think that the the dominant narrative of this being all good, all positive panacea is a very powerful one and one that, you know, people want that to be true, then they don't really want to hear that there's another side to the story. So I think that, you know, inevitably there's going to be um, some backlash, but I think that's just the way it is. So I mentioned before, I, I'm part of this meditation industrial complex. I made that term up. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to use it, but um, it's not a thing, really. Um, but uh, th- what, are, what, what responsibility does somebody in my position have? I mean, I have a podcast. I write books. or I'm, I wrote one book, and I'm going to do another. Um, I have an app. Um, what, what responsibility uh, do I have when talking about this to, to present it in the right light? And I guess the second part of that question is, you know, we at the 10% Happier app, we have coaches uh, who, all, who, you know, any, anybody who uses our app can, has access to an experienced meditator that they can communicate with directly through the app. These people have 10 to 15 years of experience. Um, and we've done a lot of talking about, you know, how to know if somebody has uh, an issue, what are the answers to their questions, uh, when, when is the right point for a referral to an in-person uh, clinical uh, setting. Um, is that enough? I think that's a terrific start, uh, no doubt about it. And I think that that probably goes above and beyond what you could find in, in some of the other more bare-bones apps. So certainly a- applaud you for, for making those efforts. I mean, I think that the main thing is to have a mechanism where you can really be tracking what's going on uh, with people or they can be able to report back some of the difficulties or challenges or just uncertainties that they're having in implementing uh, their practice of meditation via an app. Um, this is a new experiment that has never been done before in the history of, of meditation and is a product of our current contemporary, highly technologized culture. And I think it has, uh, it has some real implications for um, what types of experiences people are going to have it, through this impersonal medium. Uh, Certainly one of the things that we're finding from our study that I think should be a concern to anybody who's uh, implementing or delivering meditation uh, through this medium is that degree of social support and perceived social support was really, really important. And for people who didn't really have a community or were geographically distant from their community or could only have access to a teacher very irregularly, um, that was that could be a real difficulty for them. Uh, and somebody who could really track them carefully, who knew what to look for, uh, that could really ease them through um, a challenging experience and maybe even keep it from being... Um, one that ended up being distressing or, or harmful for them and could really make it be something that was ultimately positive. Uh, I think it's great to have experienced um, meditator, meditators or teachers who people can talk to. 
Um, one thing I would just caution about that is that uh, there are people who can meditate for a long time and themselves not have gone through some of these difficulties. So come back to the example of, of trauma history. If your coaches don't haven't had traumatic memories resurfacing in their practice because they don't have a trauma history, um, they might not necessarily know how to draw upon their own experience in order to respond to somebody like that. And there's lots of other types of examples where individual differences are really important. And it naturally, teachers who have had the widest range of challenging experiences and manage them are often the, the best equipped to kind of know how to respond and help people through that. But for better or worse, those teachers are not always that uh, common or accessible or able to really help, you know, everybody who's just getting their, their feet wet with this. Yeah. I mean, we've developed standards of care, our, you know, in conjunction with some experienced meditate, very, very experienced meditation teachers so that our coaches who are pretty experienced themselves know when to uh, refer people for qualified in-person support. Um, but this is something that we, are, you know, take very seriously, and we want to continue to work on, and, and that's why I personally and we as a company find the work you're doing to be really valuable. I mean, I think one of the things that I learned about monitoring for adverse effects is that negative effects of treatment are a very different kind of thing than positive effects. And so people are not going to voluntarily tell you when they're having negative effects. So it's it's very likely that they'll just they'll just not tell you, um, especially the teacher. Um, and so you it, there needs to be a kind of program or monitoring system where um, it's actually not even enough to ask people, you know, have you had any unusual or unpleasant effects? Because the, these open-ended questions also don't generate the kind of accurate uh, counts as really very, that's why we have this specific code book. So you have really, really specific information about what to ask about. And then when you start asking specific questions, like, do you feel like you don't exist? Um, or do you feel like you're existing outside your body? Or, you know, that movements happen on their own and they're not made by you? Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I have that. So people like they need to be it needs to be a very specific question. So there, there is a there is a real like uh, science to monitoring correctly. So that's another thing that I think that the entire field of meditation, including apps, will eventually will eventually get good at that. So I think that that's probably coming down the line. Yeah. yeah with your help. Um, Sorry. And then one other one other thought that I had, you know, how do we know that the support systems that we've created are enough. And I would say that when my phone stops ringing, <laughs> then then that means that the support systems that are in place are um, are enough. But right now that like the fact that like people, I mean, I get so many emails every week and calls every week more than I can handle. That's an indication to me that there's that we're missing something, that there's mm -hmm. something else that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Let me just read to you because we, you know, we've gotten some questions from our users that are interesting um, along these lines. I just want to uh, read one. I'm not going to use the name here, um, but this is a quote. And, and when I say users, I mean app users. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been listening to Joseph, Joseph Goldstein, on the Insight Hour. 
these are uh, ultimate teachings for me. And also with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is an uh, old friend of Joseph's and mine, um, discussing higher stages of realization. But these discussions of reaching a new level of perception, shedding the conventional notion of, quote, self, a maturation of the spiritual practice, is one of the ultimate truths or true wisdoms or something like that. And how this can be painful and disorienting and disturbing, this is what I want to be ignorant of, uh, of. Am I alone in this? Am I the only one who wants to abandon the practice when it reaches these higher stages? What do you guys, would you, how would you respond to this user? Yeah, this is an interesting issue that I was thinking about as Willoughby was talking about monitoring. So say you're monitoring for someone who's having a, and someone reports a loss of sense of agency over their actions. It's not just an issue of identifying a particular experience. It's then an issue of what does that mean? Um, and is that an insight? Is that part of the goal? Um, or is that something that is going to be concerning? So this is, again, where I think you know, the practitioner's goals and, medit- and expectations, also their context, are they doing this in the context of an app that is primarily advertising better emotional regulation, calm, and enhanced functioning in daily life. If that's the experience that's happening in that context, perhaps there's a mismatch there, and they might want to have some sort of uh, guidance back towards the types of things that they were more expecting. This is, of course, quite different if you are on a... um, meditation retreat at a monastery in a traditional Buddhist context, you've done a lot of scriptural study, and you're interested in having these insights into changes in sense of self and seeing if Buddhist teachings around the reduction of suffering that are thought to accompany those uh, can really play out for you. Then I think the experience, maybe described in identical words, you know, could mean something different for that person who has that motivation, is in that context, and is oriented towards that goal. And this is, for me, one of the interesting, uh, you know, questions as meditation comes out of the monasteries and into the marketplace. How is this impacting what these different um, experiences mean? And it really makes the study much more complicated. It makes it complicated amidst our, you know, uh, sample of Buddhists, and it makes it even more complicated attempting to apply what we've found to other meditation applications, your own apps and the field of mindfulness-based interventions, which are often really situated in different cultural contexts with different narratives about what's supposed to happen, what is the goal here. so in, in response, I think that, you know, the, the context is really important, the motivation is really important, and that makes it very difficult to say what any of these things mean in any intrinsic sense. So, so what do you guys think are the next—there are so many open questions which you guys openly acknowledge. What, do you th- what, are, the, what are you most excited about looking at next? What, what are the big questions you want to tackle going forward? Well, we have a lot, a, a long list, but I think for me, I'm really interested to understand the mechanism. And because I'm a neuroscientist, the neurobiological mechanisms, which I actually think are extremely low-hanging fruit, because we have a we have a pretty good knowledge of a lot of the effects on the brain that different meditation practices have. And the 
what these difficulties, I don't think they're going to be radically different than those. They're probably going to be the same, but just uh, sort of an exaggeration. So, for example, you know, a lot of my earlier research and even my TED talk, you know, goes on and on about how, you know, good meditation is at strengthening the prefrontal cortex and uh, controlling the limbic system and the amygdala and how that results in, you know, improved emotional uh, reactivity and or decreased emotional reactivity. So that's like we already know that that's 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 the positive side. But having a really strong prefrontal cortex that, you know, shuts down your limbic system and your autonomic nervous system is also the neurobiology of dissociation and, you know, blunted affect and kind of a zombie-like state that, that if you keep going, could, could um, result in that. So it, it's not that different. Um, and like I said, it's low-hanging fruit, which is always a good thing in research, um, not to have to reinvent the wheel. So I think um, I am excited to see whether other people also take that on. I think there have been a number of other people who are looking into, uh, are already working on a number of the mechanisms that we're thinking about. Yeah, and I'll just add from my own perspective, um, those of you who read uh, the, the paper, which I hope you will attempt to do, you'll see that the study that we're reporting on, as we've mentioned, is an interview-based qualitative study. And you might be surprised to find that it being a qualitative study, does not feature qualitative data. And this is really because this first paper is an attempt to summarize what we did, our methodology, and what we found in our, in our overall summary of our results. But where we can go from here is working with the many thousands of pages of transcripts that we have, um, the really rich and interesting and compelling narratives that both practitioners and teachers gave us. And we can look at you know, take, undertake specific questions, whether that's looking at how people in a particular tradition or sub-tradition uh, think about certain issues. We can look at clusters of related experiences and think about how and why those might um, be emerging together. Um, we can do all sorts of, I think, creative and interesting uh, analyses that will allow us to slowly get some of these voices and, and stories out there as well and, and have it not just be this admittedly more abstract summary that we're offering in this first paper. So there's already a number of works in process and basically almost under review for uh, some of our forthcoming papers. And I think people can expect that we'll be uh, thinking carefully about and writing and publishing on this for many years to come. As we wrap up here, what, is there something that I should have asked but didn't? <laughs> Um, I think, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, we said this in the press release and we say it in the paper, but I think it's important to sort of counteract a lot of the predominant assumptions, um, that are, we often get in response to this research, um, and that, that, you know, meditation difficulties only to, only happen to people on intensive retreats. Um, only happen to people who have, you know, prior psychiatric vulnerabilities like a psychiatric disorder or a trauma history, only happen to people who are, you know, not adequately prepared or, or have adequately supervision or don't have a teacher. And while those may play a role, we found exceptions to all of those. So I think that, unfortunately, there's no sort of 
pat answer for why these things happen that applies to everyone, like that everybody's experience is unique and that there's it's a complex set of factors um, sort of that kind of creates the perfect storm for each person. So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, you know, really honoring individual differences in diversity um, and complexity is the name of the game. And I know that's not the media's forte, but I'm going to ask for it anyway. <laughs> you, you you have, uh, ever since the first time I met you, Willoughby, at the um, uh, Buddhist Geeks Conference in Boulder, Colorado, back in like 2010 or something like that, you've had some sort of wariness about the media. Um, not, I'm not saying it's unjustified, but you, this study that you've been conducting for many years now, kind of conducting it uh, somewhat involuntarily in public because people have known that you were working on this. It's generated controversy every step of the way. Well, now it's finally out. What are you worried about? Well, it's funny. You know, I think that journalists and scientists have these stereotypes of each other, which are kind of true. So journalists think that we, you know, can't give a straight answer, that we caveat everything to death, we split hairs, we just have these long-winded answers that don't say anything. I'm sure people think that who have been listening to this podcast so far. Um, You know, and and scientists are frustrated with the media. We think that, you know, they'll do anything to sell a story. They don't care about accuracy or the truth, and they want to sensationalize. And so, you know, there's this really unfortunate um, relationship. And I think that that really needs to change. And it's, it's especially now with like alternative facts and fake news. And it's just, you know, there's definitely the, the desire to won't want to go hide and not not deal with the media at all. But I also am thinking about the people who are, you know, alone and feeling ashamed of what happened to them in meditation, and they need someone to reach out to them. So I'm, I'm sort of, it's my practice right now is to like deal with the media. Um, because I do it's have your a meditation lot of, practice. It's my meditation practice. I've had a lot of, and this is not just, you know, making up stories in my mind. This is based on experience. I've had a lot of, I've been misquoted. Um, I've been, you know, I really only gave one interview so far, and that interview has been cut up and repackaged and, you know, circulated in different places where I was never invited to give commentary. So um, I haven't had good experiences before, and I'm, I'm, but I, I think this is important, and I think that there are a lot of people that are suffering needlessly um, that I can actually help. So I'm, I'm making an effort, but um, it's, it's definitely not like high on my list. Um, it's, it's, a diff- it's challenging for what me. Is, for what sure. is the twist that you're worried about? How, what is the way in which this research could get twisted that you don't want it to get twisted? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that that's most concerning to me is that, you know, there are a number of people, these are like major stakeholders in the meditation industry. These are Dharma teachers, you know, long-term meditators, people who have written books, um, you know, and they were brave enough to talk about their experiences. And some of them were, you know, really harrowing and heartbreaking. And they told us their stories. And some of the responses that I've seen have been, you know, various kinds of victim blaming, you know, like that that somehow this experience that they had was their fault. You know, they, they didn't know what they were getting into. Um, they meditated too much. They didn't have the right teacher. They did it wrong. Just some kind of way that it's their fault. And I mean, and I we know from, you know, attribution psychology that that's called the fundamental attribution error when you, you know, make dispositional attributions to something, especially if you don't like it. Um, so we know that's going to happen, but it, it just pains me to see that people who have already been through so much 
by being in this research study are being you know, blamed again. It's, it sort of reminds me of the, you know, Vietnam uh, vets or like, you know, World War II vets who are blamed for having PTSD when in fact it's, you know, war causes trauma and, and not some kind of personality weakness. So I see that pattern happening again and like it, it makes me really sad. What so. about the flip side that people would write articles that say meditation drives you crazy? <laughs> I mean, well, that's, kind of, a, that's yeah. kind of a version of that though because, um, you know, I think that just as there are, we, we want to say that just as the individual factors are not the whole story and you, and you can't just blame uh, the person or their approach and that somehow meditation is, um, you know, not culpable or there's no role that the practice itself played. Um, there is a role that the practice played, but again, it's not the only role. And so that, I think, to to misconstrue it that way is to assume that the practice is inherently dangerous. And that's certainly not the case either, and that's very much not what we're saying. Uh, as we write in the paper, what we're really looking at here is what we call an, an interaction-based model, where there there are instances in which the practice is playing a role. And our causality assessments were in large part a way of making sure of that and uh, keeping people out of the study for whom this experience was just happening anyway due to other life circumstances uh, and that they don't think meditation played a role. It just happened to be concurrent. Uh, we did our best to try to not have that be part of what we were studying. Um, but so that's to say that, again, there's there's multiple things going on here. It's not all practitioner and it's not all practice. Uh, and exactly w how much of each is responsible in these cases is really individual. And I think to really get a handle on this is going to require a lot more research and research that's designed differently than what we did, which was primarily to document the range of these effects but not really address issues of frequency and certainly not address, address in a kind of fundamental and conclusive way issues of causality. So um, a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, if people want to read the study, which I recommend because it's a good read, um, or, just, or also to find out more about you guys and your work, what, what, where would you send them? So we made an effort to make sure that the study and all of its as, as accompanying uh, supplementary files are uh, free and accessible to the public. So we chose an open access journal, PLOS One, P-L-O-S One, like the number. Um, so you can just go to their website and find it. You can also just follow the link that will be part of our um, press release. So the, what I'm about to say is pro probably colored by my personal affection for you guys, but I do really think that that this is an incredibly valuable th contribution you're making. And and I, as I said before, I see it as part of the maturation of this still new field. Um, and I think we need to. We shouldn't be afraid of the truth here. We should talk about what the difficulties are and let people know so that they can be informed consumers. So uh, I, I thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And and I also just want to thank a few other people. I want to thank your folks up at Brown University. You, I'm in New York City. You're up at Pro, in Providence, Rhode Island. And there was a 
a certain amount of hustle that needed to take place on your end to make this technically possible to get you into a radio studio on campus. So big thanks to those guys. And I want to thank the folks on my end, uh, Josh Cohan and Lauren Efron, who uh, produced this podcast, who also had to do a certain amount of hustle and also and they're going to have more hustle to do to get this uh, posted in time. So uh, big thanks to everybody involved here. And thanks again to both of you, Willoughby and Jared. And congratulations again on getting this study out after so many years of hard work. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.